Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. Thank you for joining me on The Long Way for Episode 3, Faith, Trust, and Pixie Dust, although I promise we're not going to be talking about Peter Pan today. The Long Way is a podcast of Cardus. Cardus, if you don't know, is a think tank dedicated to building the common good. In order to build the common good, we produce policy research aimed at improving how we live together well, respecting our many differences, and protecting the vulnerable. We're applying that kind of thinking in the first season of The Long Way to the theme of rebuilding from a pandemic that's had social consequences, not just physical ones. And one area that's definitely in play is trust, especially trust in government. You may be familiar with the Edelman Trust Barometer. It's been around for years. But the folks at Edelman provided a mid-pandemic update recently that found Canadians' trust in government had shot up dramatically. Now, one way that trust could be tested is in how government deals with third-party groups and enforces election laws. That's what field reporter Peter Stockland will examine a little later on. But first, let's think about what this increase in trust means and where it leaves Canada for the future. For that, we'll bring in the executive vice president of Edelman Canada, David Ryan, and the president and CEO of Cardis, Michael Van Pelt. David and Michael, it's great to be able to speak with you. It's great to be here. So, Thanks for having yes, me. Yes, same, same with me. Looking forward to this, Daniel. Well, one of the most remarkable findings in the spring update of the Edelman Trust Barometer for Canada is that trust is up generally, but especially so for government. Can you unpack that for us a little bit, David? Sure. I mean, happy to do that. There were, I think, a number of extraordinary data points in our special edition of trust that came out uh, just this week. Um, for government, you know, that is one of the most interesting ones to look at. Um, after we studied trust as part of our annual cycle, and we were in field actually in the lead up and during the federal election in the fall. And the results after that actually showed a decline in trust in government, which is interesting because normally you see a bit of a honeymoon period after an election, um, but government, you know, trust dropped as well as trust in our, the other three institutions we study: media, NGOs, and business. This time around, um, smaller sample size and not as many countries studied, but Canada sh saw the second highest of the eleven countries we studied in terms of a jump in trust in government. And that's twenty points, and so clearly government in Canada is doing something right, um, you know, in helping us manage the pandemic. Uh, Michael, I mean, social trust is is critical to maintain, of course, especially in a crisis, as is trust of, of government. What's your take then on the dramatically higher level of, you know, Canadians' trust in government? I think we have to first place this in context. And that context is just really one of thankfulness. Let's look at where we are in Canada. We actually have institutions of trust. We we have we still have rule of law. Our elections process is 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 fair and um, and and honorable. Uh, citizens are still having vehicles and mechanisms to be able to per be uh, participants to government. Uh, the media is still an active player in making government accountable and responsible. So. 
as it were, the thankfulness part, Daniel, is that we have the fundamentals, the institutional fundamentals that actually allow us to have certain levels of trust. And I think when we move into a, a very difficult crisis that we're facing, those fundamentals come out to play in a stronger and more positive way. Uh, that said, I, I, I have concerns about how we interpret the results of, uh, with regard to trust at this particular moment, and I, I, w I would look forward to discussing those. Well, like what, what concerns do you mean? Well, I think there's a couple things. Number one is the... There's a, there's a basic irony in the question around trust. Trust is a, a question of keeping promises over a long period of time. So when you have a, and I'd love to get David's thoughts on this, when you have a dramatic shift in trust over a very, very short period of time, it might have a suggestion of fickleness in one's giving of trust. Uh, what would prompt, because that's not necessarily how trust normally works. Trust is gained over time, keeping your promises and being honest and all those kind of things. And here we have nearly the uh, kind of ironic incident where people's trust has changed in such a dramatic way. That's the one kind of concern, and I would love to see, we'll see what thoughts are. The second one is, um, there, and I don't know if, David, if you can control for this, let's remember that during the time of the, of the polling, Canadians were getting huge and being promised huge amounts of money. Um, and, and that does influence, uh, it's not a self-selection kind, kind of issue, but it, 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 it may influence people's uh, um, view of government. D David, what do you think of that? Yeah. Um, I completely agree. I think, listen, right now, the government in Canada, whether that the federal government or the provincial government, is the single largest source of capital for both business and individuals in this country. And that certainly influences trust, um, without a doubt. Um, the What we've found historically with Edelman, when we've seen double-digit jumps in trust for any of the institutions that we study, we start looking then at a trust bubble. And historically, what goes up comes down. And I think government, um, we happen to be in field, and I'm supposing here, I, I expected a bit of a high point in terms of trust in government. And I, that, I mean, I will say, I mean, aside from, from the, the financial support that government is giving to Canadians at this time, and it, it has to, I mean, government is doing a good job, both federally and at the provincial government level and municipally as well. I think in terms of balancing empathy and pragmatism in, you know, in the context of a pandemic and managing it. Um, and they, they are, and this is where I think we can compare ourselves to perhaps our, our neighbors south of the border. They are cultivating trust by actually relying on the experts. And right now, that's a particularly important thing because we need to understand the science so that we can properly manage this. Uh, you know, I, I want to touch on another aspect of of what the trust barometer found, uh, and that is the trust is up not just for government, I mean, most dramatically for government perhaps, but it's also up for business, it's up for the media, it's up for non-governmental organizations, and, and all of that I would consider healthy. Um, but what I also found interesting is that when you ask about who should lead in certain areas, things like, you know, containing the pandemic, uh, informing the public, uh, economic relief, helping people cope, all of those sorts of things. Canadians overwhelmingly choose government in all of those categories. So my question mm -hmm. would be, and this is maybe to the to the both of you, we can start with you, David, where does that leave civil society? 
It's a very good question. Um, I mean, we're putting a lot of emphasis and faith in government right now. Um, and that will be tested, I think, in the days to come. There's, I mean, there's a number of other interesting data points. I mean, we, we obviously are trying to balance, um, the, the health factors and the economic factors. And right now, Canadians are giving government, um, I think a passing grade in terms of their, the things they've done to restrict movement and impose a lockdown. Um, and they, you know, the data point in terms of 73% of Canadians agree that, um, government has acted reasonably and appropriate, um, you know, in terms of managing the pandemic. But that, that is going to be tested in the weeks to come, um, as we start contemplating unlocking the economy, um, and then potential second and third waves of the pandemic. Um, and we're far less trusting and open, open to things like allowing government to track us and track our personal data. Um, to help them manage the pandemic. So I think, it, you know, it, it's a it's a very tough question to answer. Michael, where do you weigh in on that? Yeah, on, on this one, I would have a touch more hesitancy. Now, the hesitancy, again, needs to be placed in the context that let's not forget the fact that we live in a free and democratic society, and that informs so many of the reaction of these numbers. However, uh, I am not sure we want to... Uh, correlate levels of trust directly with the proper ordering of society or the proper ordering of, so, uh, uh, of social institutions in society. So for example, if you, um, uh, the, uh, if you look at some of the countries like France, for example, which is very high level of state GDP, state uh, uh, activity as part of the overall GDP in France, very, very high levels of trust in government. Um, but I'm hesitant about that. And I, uh, partly because I'm concerned that if we continue a trend to an over-reliance on government, government inter, uh, involving itself in more aspects of life, eventually government will not be able to deliver. And two examples of that. Number one, in the social services world, it is extremely difficult for government to be able to provide effective services and structural supports for the, the dramatic rise in mental illness. Um, so here we come up against a, a, a huge need that has been growing in this pandemic environment and actually the limits of the very institution that we're depending on. And not for, uh, uh, for negative reasons or for uh, um, people not being properly motivated, but just because of the reality of the institution. Another example would be the education one, and I'm very curious to watch how this happens. The, we have very large educational institutions and normally larger organizations sometimes don't have the maneuverability in crisis situations. Um, and I look at, uh, I, come, I'm, I live in, in Ontario here, and it, it took weeks for this very large institution, namely the education system, to be able to figure out what at all it was going to do. And it simply said, okay, historically government and schools and government schools and state schools take care of 94% of the population of children in this country. All of a sudden, nope, we're sending them back to the parents. They didn't <laughs> ask parents permission, they just give them back to the parents. And so here's an example where maybe the, uh, uh, a trust is not necessarily well placed and it doesn't meet and uh, connect prop to what might be the proper ordering of, of social structures. David, you mentioned earlier uh, a trust bubble. You know, what goes up really dramatically comes yeah, down perhaps point. dramatically. Is there an, an, a negative to that? Is there something we need to be watching for 
you know, as the pandemic goes on, as as measures are relaxed at, at you know at varying speeds in various parts of the country. I mean, there's certainly you know a negative associated with it. Um, I, like I said, I, I do think government is going to be tested, and and we can't we we are relying uh, on government more than we ever have, and and I think that can't continue in perpetuity. Um, I mean, the other interesting data points that 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 our trust study um, highlights is the is people's expectation that that business and government and NGOs form partnerships and find perhaps new models of solving some of these, you know, fundamental problems that we're wrestling with. Um, but government, we're going to become frustrated as a society if we are, you know, you know, can, if we are locked down for, for a long period of time, if jobs, you know, the unemployment line gets longer uh, and we continue to lose jobs in the economy um, and people are going to, and you're seeing that south of the border, I think, you know, more acutely. Um, and that those type of social stresses, I think, will will be what could pop the bubble for government in Canada. But we're all supposing here. We don't really know what the future holds. Well, that's that's interesting. And you mentioned the, the possibility of new partnerships. Michael, very briefly before we went out of time, the, the possibility of new partnerships, I guess, between civil society and government, that has to be an exciting prospect for you, if I know you at all. Oh, I, I love that conversation. I think, David, you're, you're right on. Um, what areas can business do great? What areas can NGOs do great? Civil society has got a lot of maneuverability at a local level. Um, I had a really interesting story. I talked to a business guy in, um, involved in Rotary in Cochrane, Alberta. And um, they, just them kind of coming together and providing basic services right from in the early days, providing toilet paper to older, uh, older uh, couples who couldn't kind of get out of their home and access them. That's when you're really seeing frontline work happening. And in, in, in the defense of the NGOs, I think that's also tougher to measure um, a, a, as well in these kind of, in these kind of environments. Um, uh, David, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on, on that measurement capability of some of the frontline work that's happening in very localized situations. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, to measure some of the success of this. I mean, we're just, we're, we're, we're seeing it play out on, you know, on a daily basis and in very practical terms. Um, I mean, you mentioned too, and we haven't talked a lot about this, but, but our evolving expectations of business, because what I, what I also think is going to happen is that the business and business leaders are, are going to be forced to play a more substantive role in the recovery. And these, you know, these are businesses that are also wrestling with their own financial challenges and operational challenges. Um, but this goes well beyond, you know, making hand sanitizer and face masks. I think, you know, business is going to have to rethink its relationship with society. But, you know, again, that's probably a conversation for another day because uh, it requires, a, a, you know, a fair bit of depth. Well, yeah. And uh, it would be uh, perhaps a, a whole separate uh, interview, maybe something we can consider for the future. David Ryan and Michael Van Pelt, thank you very much for joining me. You're thank welcome. you for having us. Such a great conversation. Well, now let's think about a case that could put trust in government to the test. 
the investigation of a pro-life group for potential election law violations during the 2019 federal campaign. Convivium.ca editor and the Longway Field reporter Peter Stockland is in Montreal with more on that. Even in a year when the COVID-19 crisis has turned virtually everything we thought we knew upside down, news of a tiny two-person pro-life group being investigated by Canada's federal elections watchdog still seems inexplicable. That's in large part because the Commissioner of Canada Elections refuses to explain why it's investigating the group called Right Now, which was founded about four years ago by two young Canadians, Alyssa Golub and Scott Hayward, who are equally passionate about the pro-life cause and the health of democracy. Right Now's lawyer, Albertos Polizagopoulos, says he too is baffled by what the Commission wants because so far it hasn't answered his letters asking for details of the investigation beyond saying the group might have violated the Canada Elections Act by supplying volunteers on a non-partisan basis to pro-life candidates in the 2019 federal campaign. I spoke by phone with Mr. Polizagopoulos in his Ottawa law office. You know, they said there was a complaint. They've not told us whether it was one complaint or multiple complaints. They've not said where the complaint came from. They've not said if it was an internal complaint from within the commissioner's office or from the general public. They've not told us if it was a complaint from a candidate who won or lost. Uh, They referenced uh, social media postings that right now had made. uh, And that seems to be the sole information they have to advance their their uh, investigation, they they say that we've worked on fifty campaigns, but they won't tell us which ones. They say that we've done things to circumvent the Elections Act, but they're not telling us how. So you know that smacks of either a fishing expedition where they're looking for uh, they're looking for something that they can they can prosecute, or it's a really unjust and and uh, improper investigation with absolutely no procedural fairness. Have you uh, attempted to get them, like, to waive this confidentiality requirement that they say is is operative? So you could go to them and say, "Look, we don't care uh, what you make public. Um, go ahead. We don't. We have nothing to hide. Uh, we release you from your confidentiality obligation to us." Yeah. So, so we've not had that discussion. When they wait, when they invoke a confidentiality obligation, what they seem to be suggesting is they are not able to tell us who complained or where the complaint stems from uh, because they have obligations to protect the confidentiality of the complainer. Um, you know, again, that smacks, that, that flies in the face of general uh, constitutional rights in Canada where you have the right to face your accuser. Um, do you see taking this to the political level and saying, look, there's a flaw in the legislation here or in the communication of this legislation that's allowing these things to happen? It was supposed to achieve X. It's achieving something that's totally unrelated to that. A couple of points on that. This this is a piece of legislation that was passed in our last government. So the last government was a majority government, which now remains the same government in a minority context. Uh, You know, I don't know if there'll be a political appetite to change this or not, but I know that when the legislation was working its way through Parliament, uh, many political and advocacy groups raised concerns over some of the potential impacts that, that portions of the legislation would have on 
on the electoral process and the democratic process. So, uh, you know, I don't know that it would, I don't know that this is a surprise uh, result or consequence of the legislation, which suggests that there may not be a political appetite to do anything about it. Uh, so that's that's number one. Number two, uh, there, when when the courts when courts assess the constitutionality of a law, they look at both the purpose and the effect of the law. And the purpose of this law, the stated purpose at least, is not to stifle, uh, you know, the democratic process and, and opposing views. But the effect seems to be. Uh, Certainly, it seems to be that uh, in in the case of right now, uh, and so that means that the portions of the legislation that are being applied here are constitutionally vulnerable. Now, is right now going to challenge the constitutionality of these uh, provisions? I don't know. We've not had that discussion. That would be premature. But I would not be surprised if somebody uh, does that. And so I I think that if this legislation is not amended by the by Parliament on its own uh, motion, I think we very well may see a constitutional challenge and a charter challenge of portions of the Elections Act uh, in the coming years. For the long way, I'm Peter Stockland. Well, we've almost come to the end of another episode, so let's bring in Rachel DeBrun, producer of The Long Way, for some final thoughts. Welcome, Rachel. Always great to be here. I found the easy-come, easy-go aspect of trust uh, in government interesting. That certainly came up in the discussion with Michael and David. You know, trust is important. It's good. But I guess we can't get too excited about a trust bubble. Mm, I love Michael's definition of trust as keeping promises over a long period of time. But there are also so many ways to look at trust, especially as it relates to government. Um, This morning, Tonda McCharles in the Toronto Star wrote that uh, trust is, is built by listening to those you disagree with. And I just love that. I mean, we're seeing so many fresh relationships. Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, was being booed at Raptors rallies last year, and now he's he and uh, Christopher Freeland are calling each other their therapists. Uh, that's just so refreshing to see uh, our leaders putting aside previous ideological lines that were stopping them from talking to each other and working together towards a common goal. It, it's hopeful, and it's uh, it's happy that that's a great thing. And one other aspect of trust uh, that I know that uh, Tonda McCharles uh, touches on as well is that trust is a two way street. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we've obviously increasingly put trust in government, especially through a crisis. Now my question is, what does government do with that trust, and will it trust us back? Yeah, that question is so interesting, and we're going to see that hit the ground in the next few months as we try to build back up the society that we quickly dashed apart for our collective safety to sort of keep people in in their homes and keep them away from each other. Now we have the difficult work of trusting each other back and forth to rebuild something because it's not just government and citizens. There's a lot in between that we are rebuilding. That's right, and and I think that's perhaps one of the important aspects of what Peter Stockland touched on in his in his field report, you know, where where trust can be tenuous, especially where we start getting into government authority, democracy, 
uh, fairness of elections, fairness of investigations, all those sorts of questions, they also uh, get at trust. But we'll have to end it there. Rachel, thank you for your insights once again. All the best, Daniel. Looking forward to our next chat. And you can listen to The Long Way right from the Cardis website or download our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. In our next episode, we'll speak with Dr. Margaret Somerville, a bioethicist at the University of Notre Dame in Australia. So for the entire team at The Long Way, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Thanks for listening.